Welcome to the Smallholder Food Business Development Institute podcast, episode number 61, step two in the five pre-steps of food safety planning. Welcome to the Smallholder Food Development Institute podcast, where we serve up truth so that you can build the profitable, sustainable food business you've always dreamed of. Now here's your host, Dr. Michelle Fannin-Steele. Good afternoon and welcome to the recording of the podcast. Hi, I am Dr. P in the house and I am so excited to be coming to you from my home office. We're uh, changing things up a little bit. So for those of you who are on the proofing box, you will notice a slightly different <laughs> backsplash here and we're going to be changing things up as we uh, move out of the move out of the office. But I'm delighted for everybody who is joining us and sorry for the short notice on the re on the uh, recording today. Usually I try and post these and post a time so people can schedule. Um, but we had a snow day this Tuesday and it just kabolixes kind of everything. <laughs> so anyway, so here I am. And today's topic, we are doing the second in uh, our series about the uh, pre-steps of food safety planning because um, there are, you know, like, there are 12 steps to any food safety plan and there are the five pre-steps and then the seven regular steps that we dive into. And we're doing those pre-steps because we call it preconditioning for success <laughs> and it's super, super important. So a couple of podcasts ago, we covered step one, which was forming your team. And I have to tell everybody, like since I recorded that, uh, I have been fond of saying food safety is a team sport. And I think I've said it like five times since I recorded that podcast and I love it so much. <laughs> so I want to welcome everybody and thank you so much for spending the time here on uh, here on the proofing box. If you're not a member of the proofing box, please come, come join us. Uh, we record this as always uh, most Thursdays and uh, I hold office hours. Uh, so today's office hours are going to cover some stuff that I have some questions I've been getting about nitrates and nitrites in sausage and then the difference um, uh, around state inspection and USDA inspection. So I have a couple of questions that we will do at the end. Uh, if you are interested in those and you're listening to the podcast on your podcast methodology of choice, uh, by all means, come and join us on the proofing box. And if you would, uh, if you like the podcast and um, uh, want um, want to uh, uh, get the chance to have a free consult with me, where I promise not to sell you anything, uh, go leave me a five star review on your podcast methodology listening. Uh, of choice and I will be picking, starting in the new year, I will be picking uh, folks who have reviewed the podcast and uh, reach out to them for a uh, phone conversation about their business dreams around food. Uh, so anyway, um, so uh, let me let me help you. Like, like this one you might need notes for. So you might wanna grab a notebook because this is, so the, the stuff that I'm teaching in this podcast series is what I like actually teach in my certification classes. So we do meat and poultry HACCP, online meat and poultry HACCP. I'm the only person that has a um, online meat and poultry HACCP course. And then I teach preventive controls and I teach um, fisheries HACCP. And, and what I am talking about, I literally teach 
in those certification courses, okay, that people pay me lots of money for. So um, we are running a special. I do want to um, uh, do a shout out for all my meat producers. Uh, if you are interested in the meat and poultry HACCP course, we are start, there are a bunch of us who are starting a new professional organization called the Charcuterie Board, um, and we're running a special that if you join the Charcuterie Board, you get 10% off of the Meat and Poultry HACCP course. Um, and I think like right off the bat, you then, I mean like, so 10% off is like 70 bucks and it's not very expensive to join the charcuterie board. <laughs> it's certainly a lot less than the $70. Uh, so if you are interested in that, send me a DM and I will hook you up uh, with the people who are running that charcuterie board. That is really going to be the home for professional charcuterie. So for those of you who do meat and poultry charcuterie, join us over there. All right, so today we are talking about uh, step two of the five pre-steps of food safety planning. And the results I'm hoping to have uh, with you guys by the end of this podcast is the idea that what do you make, all right, has a rather broader definition than you might think, <laughs> okay? And because it has a rather broader definition than you might think, I wanna talk to you, as I always talk to you, about the assets in your business, okay? We are a, we are a podcast around building businesses that marry up market share, feeding people, feeding the people we love and we care about, and sleeping at night, okay? Every product that you make needs to address those things, like one or more of those things in one way or another, all right? And I know that sounds a little esoteric, but it's really not. Just think of a Venn diagram and three overlapping circles. You've got to, in order to have a business, you have to have a, a modicum of, of market share. You know, food is a quarter of the world's uh, economy, and so you don't need very much, <laughs> all right? But you got to have market share. You got to be feeding and nourishing people. That's why we all got into this business is because we love to feed people. But then I am sure you are fond of sleeping at night, all right? The way you marry up all of those things is you, you build a business based on the six assets that I talk about, okay? That is the mindset of management, the people who, are, who run and own the business, the mindset of the employees, the trust and credibility that you build with your customers, your products, that's, so that's number four in what we're talking about today in terms of assets, your processes, so that's like your food safety plan, and then finally, your money and your capital equipment, okay? Everybody comes to me first about money and capital equipment and facilities and all of that sort of stuff. I totally get it. That stuff is super easy to fund. And I will tell you, the only time I have never gotten a facility through a government inspector is when that facility didn't have a bathroom that they controlled, okay? That is the everything else I can work with. All right, you need a bathroom that you control. So not a bathroom in a strip mall, a bathroom that you control. Everything else is possible, okay? And we'll be talking a little bit more about the USDA process at the end of the podcast. So anyway, so you build those assets, you build those six assets, right? And that's how you go about getting market share, feeding people and sleeping at night. And that, my friends, is 
a business. <laughs> that is a good business right there, okay? So the results that I am looking for today are to talk to you about that step two of the five pre-steps of food safety planning, which is to define your product. Now, most of all y'all, um, come to me with a product that is, I want to make hams, I want to bake bread, I want to make waffles, I want to, you know, do fruit salad, I, nuts, I, I, I work with everybody, okay? And the food you make, for certain, my friends, is a product, <laughs> okay? It is probably the core product. It is not the only product, okay? The, if we look at the products of your business, your products are the things that deliver value to your customers. That makes your invoicing system a product of your business. That makes your clean equipment a product of your business. Because your customers, I promise you, value clean equipment. They value um, a reasonable invoicing system that they understand. So, okay, they value the... Um, trust and credibility that you build with them. All of these things are products of your business, not just the food that you make. Now, within the context of food safety planning, if you are, if you are doing like a, a USDA HACCP or just an FDA preventive controls plan and you don't need to go after SQF or Global Food Safety Initiative ISO compliance protocol, all you have to do is describe your product, okay? But the thing is, is that when you describe your product, you need to be able to really describe your product, okay? And what I am talking about, of course, is specifications. Now, most folks think that specifications are for only the big guys, and that's totally not true. Specifications are for everybody. I have specifications in my business, and I don't make food for a living, <laughs> okay? This idea of do you know what you, you make came with the manufacturing revolution in the 70s, okay? And food and smallholder food production is kind of far behind our other manufacturing counterparts because we just simply haven't adopted what, um, what everybody else had to adopt in order to meet marketplace regulations. Like the cars and the computers and even the software and all that sort of stuff, they did this like probably a generation ago. And so we are kind of playing catch up, right? And so when I talk about specifications, let's talk about food specifications, first of all, because that's where most of you are, is that you are building your finished product specifications for your food, okay? And in, in uh, terms of food safety planning and the second pre-step of food safety planning, we're really talking about what the heck is your product, but I am talking about it in vastly more detail than you are probably talking about it. And I'm talking about it from the perspective of getting your customers to understand the features of your product, okay, so that they understand them and they can go build market share, they can go and nourish their populations and they can sleep at night. 
because we are B2B businesses, all right, by and large. If you, have, if you have to develop specifications, for heaven's sakes, you're, you're, you're selling to another business. If you are, if you are selling um, charcuterie, you're in a butcher shop and you sell charcuterie directly to customers, you're not under USDA uh, inspection usually anyway. Um, and so you're not gonna, you're not gonna need as uh, robust a specification. Your customers are still gonna need to know what you make, and I'm sure you understand that. So this is really for B2B customers, what I'm about to go through. So your specifications need to get into enough detail to really describe your product, but you are not gonna wanna put proprietary info into it because your these specifications get shared, and you will understand this because I'm gonna tell you to ask you uh, for your, for you to ask for your customer specifications in just a little bit. So, so specifications um, need to have somebody responsible for them, okay? If you are a one-person shop, you are responsible for the specs. But it doesn't, you know, it doesn't always have to be the owner. If the first time you write them, it's probably gonna be the owner. My recommendation is, is you learn how to get familiar with them and you understand how much um, control you need to have over your spec, all right? The more third-party audits you get or the higher level of third-party audits you get, the more control over your spec you're gonna need. And from a controls, control, I mean um, document control. So document control is something we do in ISO production. Uh, and if you're just USDA and just getting started and stuff like that, don't worry about it. But your specs need to be like signed off on. Somebody has to say, yeah, I agree to this spec. This is exactly, this is in fact what we're making. All right, so your spec is gonna include um, any product numbering. There are some people who do part numbers because that's how their software works. You don't really have to do that, but you can assign a part number to a finished product. That's definitely one of the ways of helping control your inventory and understand your inventory. Uh, you're gonna wanna know the brand names of your products. If you have product titles, so say you have, say you're a co-packer and you make, I don't know, fennel sausage and you co-pack for a bunch of different people, you're gonna have lots of different brand names, but one product title, all right? You're gonna have a product description, and this needs to be like a real world description. So fennel salami, um, you would want to actually say something in the neighborhood of, um, you know, it's how big the casing is, um, how many links, how many, whatever, okay? If you are making cookies, you know, it's whatever kind of cookies they are. So, and then uh, the next thing you're gonna wanna describe is what is the net weight, okay? Your, so the laws that govern, govern weights of food in commerce are not the food safety laws. They are other state laws and things like that. And if you think the penalties are bad for having food safety problems, wait until you short weight your food because, oh my God, <laughs> then they really come after you. All right, your specification is also going to need to include your ingredients. And we always put the, um, when we write this out, we always somehow emphasize our allergen ingredients. So for those of you who are unfamiliar, we have the big eight allergens. So that is dairy and eggs, wheat and soy, tree nuts and peanuts, shellfish, so that's crustacean shellfish, and fin fish, okay? So those are, those are our big eight food allergens. When you list out your ingredients, make sure those allergens are in common names. So if you use whey, please put in contains dairy. There has been many a recall over that. 
okay? And, and somehow indicate on your spec sheet what your allergen ingredients are, okay? That will then move us into our allergen declaration. For my clients, I have everybody create an allergen declaration along those, um, along those eight allergens, just because it's super helpful in terms of what you're um, actually able to, um, like what, what you're gonna have to pay attention to on your label, frankly. All right, you can't, just to tell you, you it's very difficult to label yourself out of allergen um, compliance and don't put maybe present to get yourself out of cleaning because it doesn't work, <laughs> okay? If you really don't have allergens, clean so that it's so that you can say that you don't have allergens between products if you um, manufacture multiple allergen products. All right, next, your customers are going to want to know the storage and usage info of your product. So the person, we're, and we're gonna cover this when we cover your intended user, but your intended user is the person who consumes your product, right? There is a way that they have to store it. So we got some beef tallow the other day and I assumed it was shelf stable. It is not, which I find very interesting. Um, but when you sell things as rendered beef, rendered lard, doesn't doesn't have to meet the uh, standard of identity, so or rendered tallow, I guess. All right, so um, you're going to have consumer directions for use, and then you're going to have the warehouse. Uh, most food gets warehoused uh, um, if you're selling it to another business, even if it's just moving into the back. That's still warehousing if you're distributing it to a grocery store, a local grocery store, and, and sending it to the back. Is this storage? Is it cold storage? Is it frozen storage? Is it um, shelf stable? Then it is very useful to start talking about shelf life. Okay, there are lots and lots of different ways to come up with your shelf life. No, you do not need a shelf life study. Um, there's plenty of information out there. I'm happy during office hours to answer questions about shelf life if you have them. But generally, you're either going to get it analyzed, which at some point you're going to want to do if you're um, if you're if you like gain enough market share, frankly, um, or you're going to take it from the literature, which also is is 100% fine. All right. So then the next thing that you're going to want to do is you're going to want to talk about nutrition claims and nutrition labeling and make sure that you understand what your customers require around nutrition claims. Okay. Under a certain size, and I don't remember what size the business is, you don't have to put nutrition labels on your food, on your packaging. However, your customer may actually want nutrition labels on the food, so you actually have to talk to them. If you're gonna be required to put nutrition claims, write them into your specification, and that becomes your Bible, if you will, even though you're not writing the Bible, um, but that becomes your your go-to document when somebody asks you about your new, about the nutritionals in your product. All right, so now let's talk about um, the um, the next part of specs, which is the one that everybody comes to me with questions about, and it's totally fine, and that's laboratory tested traits. Now, we are for those of you who are in cannabis, um, we are in the middle of. Um, Everybody freaking out about this. So they came out with the hemp rules. One of the um, one of the rules in the interim final rule that the USDA put out is that all labs that test for CBD are going to have to be registered in the drug diversion program of the DEA. So here in Maine, we have zero count them zero labs that will do this. We have zero labs that have registered with the state to do cannabis testing for a recreational program that's going live in the spring. Like we're gonna have all, it's gonna be adult use recreational in Maine in the spring. 
and nobody has any any place to get this stuff tested. Um, okay, because cannabis, frankly, not that easy to test. Way harder to test cannabis than it is to test pork, for example, or chocolate. And chocolate's not that easy. All right. So when we talk about lab tested traits, the first thing that I want you to do is to talk to your laboratory and ask if your laboratory is ISO 17025 compliant. Okay, and I'm gonna put that in the comments. All right, your laboratory should be ISO 17025 compliant. Now, not only do they have to be ISO 17025 compliant, they have to be ISO 17025 compliant for your um, test that you're asking. So listeria, if you're asking for like listeria testing in chocolate, they have to have an ISO compliant test for that. So the lab itself and all the testing. The next thing that I want you to ask for is have they validated to the matrix, okay? Not all of you have easy matrices. So the matrices is the food itself. So if you were submitting a ham, the matrix is the ham. If you're submitting a chocolate, the matrix is the chocolate. Food chemistry is difficult. And if your laboratory doesn't have its testing validated to the matrix, your tests may not be valid. So you send off a test for shigatoxin E. coli, unless we know that test works with your food, your test isn't valid. So you gotta ask these questions of your lab, okay? And you put the information about the test in your specification. The information will come to you as an AOAC number usually, okay? I highly recommend AOAC. There are some of you who are gonna have to do US pharmacopeia testing um, standards. I don't like those very much. And um, given the option, I would absolutely go for genetic testing over ELISA testing or what we call immunohisto chemistry, okay? And I know that's a lot. Feel free to come back during office hours and ask questions about that. Take notes and re-listen to this when you are finding your laboratory for your food. <laughs> Alrighty? So we test for a whole bunch of different things, and not all of them are laboratory testing. Like your spec has to include weight, height, length, width, if that applies to your product as well as things like total plate count. So that's the aerobic, those are like the spoilage organisms, yeast and mold, that's very, very important in cannabis. Uh, generic coliforms, which are things that look like E. coli but are not necessarily E. coli, they're an indicator of filth. Actual E. coli, so generic E. coli. Salmonella, shigatoxin E. coli, if you're in a, uh, if you have a food that is, has shigatoxin E. coli that's reasonably likely to occur. And then listeria, all um, ready to eat foods should at a minimum have testing for salmonella, shigatoxin E. coli, and listeria. It's just like, that, that is in the like sleep at night portion of our Venn diagramming. <laughs> okay. And then the question is, is like, where the heck do you find the info? Well, the good news is, is I uh, run office hours. So you're fr free, feel free to um, log on to the proofing box on Thursdays and find me for office hours and ask. Um, PubMed is a really good resource. So that's a resource out of the National Institute of Health here in the United States. You can do a lot of Googling, but of course be very wary of, um, of Dr. Google, okay? The other place where you can look is your customer specifications. If you are buying from big people, you know, and like fairly large 
companies, they probably have specifications. Ask for them. <laughs> okay, you can get a ton of info uh, from your clients. All right, so what's the next thing in describing your food? I want you to look at what we call the organoleptic traits. Organoleptic is like one of my favorite words. And the uh, organoleptic testing is testing using your five senses, okay? So your food has a very specific taste. Um, and I think my favorite is the people who describe certain New Zealand, is it New Zealand Chardonnay's cat's pee on a gooseberry bush? I mean, like it's, then there's like a, there's a, um, a wine out there called Cat's Pee and it's P-H-E-E -E or something like that with cute little cat on the label. So your food definitely has a taste, right? <laughs> Write down what that taste is. Do your very best. You're going to have to describe it like wine, but you know, it, it, your, your food will have a characteristic taste. Your food will probably have a characteristic smell. Um, sometimes your food has a sound. Cooked bread sounds hollow. <laughs> All right. Um, and you've got to, um, you've got to, you know, there's, I can tell a sound difference between a case hardened sausage and a uh, sausage that's been aged in the right amount of humidity. Um, and so you're going to want to, you know, so one's kind of a softer thump and one's a harder crack. Um, so you're going to want to, if you can, um, talk about what your product sounds like, how your product feels, and then what your product looks like. And I recommend a color wheel. Your product probably has a certain color, and it's very important to remember that people buy with their eyes. And the more you can describe what your product is supposed to look like, what color it's supposed to be, then... Um, the more likely you are to make the same product over and over and over again. Um, and of course, I have to tell you, the definition of quality is conformance to specifications, okay? So all of that commodity food out there, you know, my favorite example is Kraft macaroni and cheese. That is, under an ISO definition, one of the highest quality foods out there because, man, that stuff never wavers from its specification. I mean, when have you ever opened up a box of, even if it's like Annie's mac and cheese and not Kraft macaroni and cheese, that it's ever any different. All those elbows are completely identical. They never vary. The cheese sauce is, I mean, it's uniform granularity because it's like powdered cheese. It's always the same size. It's like those things never vary. And that, I hate to tell you, is the definition of quality. Okay. So, um, then the next thing we want to talk about is, is you've got to actually get that stuff packed and delivered. How is your product delivered? Is it cased? Is it palleted? Um, is it rainbow palleted? If you don't know what that is, come to office hours and ask me. Uh, and how are your customers getting it? All right. Because your customers are not, your food does not magically transmogrify onto your customer's shelves. It's got to actually get uncased or unpalleted or whatever. And your customers need to know what the heck is in there, especially if you have allergens. Because when we do warehousing of products with allergens, allergens either have to be segregated or they all have to be on the bottom floor of the warehouse. Um, so there, there are some pretty significant things that your customer needs to know, all right? And those palleting kinds of configurations and things like that are, you're just, you're gonna have to go learn what that is and your warehouse guy will help you or you guys will do it yourselves. You know, I mean, it's not, it, this doesn't have to be written in really crazy, abstruse language. 
ha ha ha, that was almost funny there. Um, but using real language, you can just say we have 24 bags per cardboard box and we have, I don't know, eight cardboard boxes per pallets, pallets are shrink wrapped and delivered. That's perfectly acceptable. It does not have to be crazy. The more plain language you can use, the better, uh, and, and the more people will understand. Because you gotta remember, people don't normally get into food and they're probably not doing shipping and receiving in a warehouse because they're naturally really brilliant at paperwork. And so the more real language you can use, the easier it's going to be for you to actually communicate that which is important and that's what your specification is really about. It's about communicating the stuff that's really actually important. Okay, so then the next thing you're gonna do is, is you're gonna actually have to take pictures of your product, all right? You wanna take a picture of the front label, if it's got sides, you wanna take like kind of like a, a I guess a zoomed out picture so somebody can um, see what it actually looks like. So this will be important for, um, in case you need to run a recall because we always need to include pictures in recalls, again, because the people who are picking stuff off of shelves are not necessarily the people who are that good at paperwork. This happened to me a lot in the Army, where we would send people to go pull recall stuff off of shelves, and my soldiers would have to go back after the people um, who work in like the PX and that sort of thing and pull the right stuff, all right? So remember the literacy levels of the people who are actually doing the work. This is incredibly important in food safety planning. Be as simple as you can possibly be, um, and that will really help your internal food safety planning and how you are communicating with your customers, okay? So that is, my friends, the short version of how to write a specification and what you need to be doing, uh, all right? Write those specifications, write them once, start with finished product specifications. You can always work yourself backwards to work in process specifications. Those are a super good idea, especially if you make batters of any kind and you need to know what your batter is supposed to look like before you put it in, turn it into a finished product and then work yourself backwards into incoming product specifications, all right? And it's the same process for, for all of that, basically. Um, and that really describes what do you make, <laughs> okay? And describing your product is incredibly important because once you describe your product, then we can go and start answering the other questions of food safety planning. All right, that's what we got this week. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining me. Y'all have a week full of awesome, and I will see you next week. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast. Be sure to join us in the Proofing Box, a private Facebook page for food producers filled with valuable information and technical tips. Grow your business by learning from people just like you, all under the guidance of a food safety expert.